welcome to Alive. Today in the show, we'll be talking with Douglas Tallamy. He believes the change starts in your own backyard. Douglas is also a professor of entomology at the University of Delaware. So let's listen closely to his vision about the homegrown national park. Yes, these are wolves howling in the Yellowstone National Park. But what is Doug's vision for a homegrown national park? Yeah, first let me give you an idea of where that came from. You know, one of the problems we have ecologically is that we've, we've allocated too much land to lawn. 40 million acres of lawn, which is bigger than the size of New England. And lawn is an ecological deadscape. Listen to the news, you know that we're losing birds, we're losing insects, and you know, we lost 3 billion birds in the last 50 years. We can't continue to lose species and still be happy on this planet. So one day I was sitting in my kitchen thinking, now what would happen if we cut the area of lawn in half? That would give us 20 million acres we could put towards conservation. Most of the lawn we have is at home, it's in our yards. We could create a new park, a new national park, and I'll, we can call it Homegrown National Park. Homegrown National Park would be by far the biggest national park in the country, 20 million acres. So that's how I came up with the idea, but I didn't put it into a book until Nature's Best Hope, trying to convince people that they are an important part of conservation. Their little piece of the world saved the day because yeah. we've parks, we've done preserves. It's not working. We're still losing all these species. So we now need to do conservation outside of the parks and the preserves. The sounds you're listening in the background comes from Doug's backyard. This is his own homegrown national park. But how can we do that, Doug? The plants we choose for our landscapes, whether they're at home, whether they're on our roadsides, whether they're in our corporate landscapes, wherever humans are planting plants, the plants we choose will determine what else can live there. So, for example, let's say I want to have chickadees breeding in my yard. What does it take to have chickadees breeding in your yard? Well, it takes caterpillars because when they're rearing their young, you know, 6,000 to 9,000 caterpillars just to get the chicks to leave the nest. And after they leave the nest, the chickadees continue to feed them caterpillars for 21 days. So you're talking about tens of thousands of caterpillars to make one clutch of a little teeny bird. How do I do that? One important part of our research has been to figure out what those plants are because all plants don't support caterpillars. And it turns out that oaks support more caterpillars than any other plant genus in North America. 950 species of caterpillars nationwide. So I'm the one who gets to determine what plants go in my landscape. If I plant oaks, I, I, I give the chickadee a chance. There'll be a lot of caterpillars for the chickadee. If I plant ginkgo from Asia or crepe myrtle from Asia, or Zelkova from Asia, or all these other plants that we typically landscape with, they don't make any caterpillars. People are always asking, Doug, which native plants should I have in my backyard? For North America, through the National Wildlife Federation, we have created the, this website, allows you to put in your zip code and the best woody plants and the best herbaceous plants for your county. So it guides people so, so the excuse, I don't know what to plant, doesn't hold anymore. We do know what to plant. 
in this country, and you can find out what the best plants are for your county. And it works really well, except in California, where there are, California is so big, a single county can have a desert, a mountain, and an ocean in it. So California has made its own, its own tool. It's called CalScape. Since it's easy to discover which native plants to use, why people still prefer to use plants from Asia? Well, we have thought for a long time that plants are just decorations. So we have this entire horticulture industry which says this plant's prettier than that plant, and it's all about aesthetics. No thought to the ecological role these plants need to play. So, you know, people go to the nursery and that's what's there, so they buy it. They don't think about it. They just think all plants are the same and I just want it to be pretty. I also want it to be like my neighbors. So there hasn't been a lot of thought that's gone into this other than does it look pretty? When everybody landscapes that way, we destroy the local ecosystem because it's not supporting the life around us. It's the species of plants and animals around us that run the ecosystems that support humans. When Doug was visiting our local library, he explained the why. Why is that? Well, remember, humans are products of nature. We are totally dependent on nature, on, on what we call ecosystem services produced by healthy functioning ecosystems. Here are just a few of the things that, that plants do for us, but for everything else as well. We Believe it or not, we're not the only things on this planet. They produce oxygen, pretty important. Uh, they clean water, also very important. Slow its journey to the sea where it's too, too uh, salty to use. Carbon capture, enormously important ecosystem service today. Plants are pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, out of harm's way, taking the carbon from that molecule, building their own tissues from it, and then pumping the extra carbon into the ground through their roots. Our soils are brown or black because of the carbon that plant roots have deposited there over the eons. Plants also uh, are building topsoil and holding it into place. They're preventing floods. They're dampening severe weather, converting sunlight into food. You know, if our plants disappear, we're going to have to eat sunlight without them, and that's going to be a challenge. What do animals do for plants? Well, they provide pest control services. They pollinate nearly 90% of those flowering plants. They disperse plant seeds and other important things. So designing landscapes like this that destroy the production of ecosystem services, it's just not a good idea. It never was a good idea, but today it's a, it's a downright terrible idea because we need more ecosystem services today than ever before. We've got 7.8, 7.9 billion people on the planet. This is how we can create a healthy ecosystem. But everywhere we've landscaped, we've, we've done it in a way that excludes the natural world. It's just this postcard, pretty landscape that, that's not doing anything ecologically. That's where the, the homeowner can decide, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to join Homegrown National Park and put the plants in that really do support the life around me. So I can have a breeding chickadee and a titmouse and blue jays and all the other things that, that represent a healthy ecosystem. Doug also explains the role the caterpillars play. Most animals don't eat plants. Why do you want to eat a plant? Because it's the plants that are capturing energy from the sun that makes life go around on planet Earth. It's really the sun's energy. And if plants didn't do that, we'd have to eat sunlight ourselves, and that's not going to happen. So plants are making the food. Then you have to eat a plant to get that food. But most animals don't eat plants. They eat something that ate plants. And it's, it turns out that caterpillars are transferring more energy from plants to other animals than any other type of plant eater. So that's a good way of measuring how well your ecosystem's doing is just count the caterpillars that are there, the, the amount and the number of species, because so many things rely on them. 
They're also, many of them are very, very beautiful. Dad loves caterpillars. He also brings a new perspective on our endangered species. Yes, and that's because no species lives in isolation. We realized that even though we wrote an Endangered Species Act, you have to save the whole ecosystem that species is in or it's not going to work. So we really ought to be talking about endangered ecosystems. And not only that, we should be saving, making sure that the common animals are doing well. They're the ones that are making most of the contributions to ecosystems. It's not the rare species you never see. We don't want to lose them, but you got to make sure those common animals are, are doing well. And most of our common animals aren't so common anymore. They're all losing ground. The UN says we're going to lose a million species to extinction. That's not an option. We're going to lose oxygen in the next 20 years. It's not an option. We have to make sure that doesn't happen. Why I wrote Nature's Best Hope, because this is a global crisis, but it's got a grassroots solution. You and me, it's the individual who can make a difference on their little piece of the earth. And if we all do it, we're done. Tell our listeners about your website. HomegrownNationalPark.org is my personal website, which includes all my information, the papers we've written, you know, discussions of our, our research, um, people that are, that are uh, supporting the, the movement. But we also have this feature we call the map. We encourage people to get their data on the map, put your location in the amount of area that you're, you have converted to native plants or you're going to convert to native plants. The object is to reach that 20 million acres. We're going to take it out of lawn and put it into, into native plants and, and see it as it develops on this map. You know, it's a visual representation of our success. I talk all the time to people who are already convinced. We need to reach the people who aren't convinced. Well, if everybody does something, it adds up quickly. One of the big mistakes we made was to think that the care of the earth, care of the environment was just for a few people, ecologists. Uh, conservation biologists, and everybody else had a green light to wreck it. Never made any sense. And now, now we're in big trouble because of it. Everybody on the planet requires healthy ecosystems. So why doesn't everybody have the responsibility of being a good earth steward? The experts can guide you, but the experts aren't going to do it for everybody. You got to do it yourself. If you own land, that's obvious. That's where you start. If you don't own land, help somebody who does. Some people own a lot of land. It's a lot of, lot of work. Or land conservancies or parks are preserved. They're all underfunded. They're all understaffed. So lots of room for volunteers there. You mostly talked about suburbs where people own a little piece of land. How about people who live in the cities and in apartments? It's harder. There's no doubt. You know, when everything's paved over, it's harder to have a functional ecosystem. But there are more and more cities that realize they've got to plant more trees. They have terrible heat island effects. And so encourage the greening of our cities. Discourage the use of cement as a default landscape. Do that because they say nobody's going to take care of it. Well, somebody can take care of it. And all the cities have parks and they have preserves. Get involved in how they're landscaped. You know, even if you live in an apartment, if you've got a balcony, you can put container plants out there. Put a big container plant with milkweed out there, and I bet I bet you anything the monarch will use it. And if everybody did that, there'd be enough resource that, that a lot of things would be used. It would help our native bees. 
So there are things that people in cities can do. There's no no doubt that if you own a piece of land in the suburbs, that's low-hanging fruit. That's the easiest thing to address. Listen to Doug's concluding remarks. What I want to argue, though, is that living with nature not only is an option, it's now the only viable option that's left to us. Why is that? Well, in the past, conservationists worked pretty much exclusively where there weren't a lot of people. We now need to turn that on its head, and we need to save nature, actually reconstruct it where we've dismantled it, where there are a lot of people, because that's pretty much everywhere. In other words, we have to find ways for nature to thrive in human-dominated landscapes, not hang on by a thread, but thrive. Sounds of the Sequoia National Park. These sounds were produced by Dr. Jacob Job for the National Park Nature Walks podcast. Thank you for listening. Please share, subscribe, support, and rate the show and all those amazing things you do with podcasts. Just go to alivepodcast.net. Engage with Alive by recording your questions into pod inbox forward slash alive. This show celebrates the wonders of being alive. <laughs>